0: back at christmas time uh, i was reading in scripture and i'd like to think it was a coincidence but i i doubt these things are coincidental <clears throat> but i'd been reading the the christmas story the nativity story in luke chapter 2 and in the story you remember that mary is visited by the angel and the angel gives her this terrible glorious news that she's pregnant and tells her that not only is she pregnant out of wedlock but she's carrying the son of God so I mean it's stressful enough and then you know for those of you parents of precocious kids you have no idea If you have to raise the Son of God, I I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that must be. But I was reading that passage, and I came to... This verse in there, in the NIV, it's translated that the angel spoke to Mary and said, the Lord has looked on you with favor. And then again refers to her and says, you are highly favored among people. And I kind of thought about that. I thought, wow, you know, this incredibly terrible blessing comes through Mary. And God says, but I favor you by giving you this. And then <clears throat> as I was thinking about that, I was reading in some other passages in the Old Testament and read of another person who it said that they were favored by the Lord. Got to thinking about that. And I thought, What does that really mean to us today that we can live in God's favor? Well, that thought stuck with me and I decided that I wanted to preach on it. And so here we are almost to June. I finally get around to it. I don't know what your life has been like, whether you were raised in favor and blessing or not. Years ago, I sat in a classroom when I was a college student (laughs) it was a psychology class i took a lot of psychology classes it didn't help but i took a lot of psychology classes and in that class the professor she said were you blessed as a child and she went on to explain that that, that what that meant to us was that somebody usually a parent reached out and spoke to us and engaged us in ways that let us know that we were wanted we were valued we were people of worth And she actually asked us to respond. So as she defined that, she said, who of you here feels like you were blessed as a child? And so I raised my hand. I was not an expected child. My parents were not planning on me. And that kind of sums up my relationship with my mom and dad for the first 20 years of my life almost, But I came along. I was a surprise. And my mom and dad had three daughters, beautiful girls. And here I come along and I disrupt their lives. And you could imagine that my mom having three girls and being in the midst of raising these girls, now here comes this boy. And this boy was not planned and expected and even wanted until they found out that they were expecting me and then mom and dad shifted gears. And, and yet, if that was mom's attitude ever at any point, I never knew of it. I never heard that. Instead, when my dad and mom communicated to the rest of the family, our larger family, that they were expecting, my grandfather got the word and my grandfather was thrilled because he said, hopefully, finally, you'll have a son. Now, in my lineage, on my dad's side of the family, I am the last Smitterks. And I did not have a son, and so this is it, folks. Um, Things kind of went downhill over the last few generations in this family line. But the day I was born, my, my mother loves to tell the story that this was back in the days when The fathers did not go into the labor and delivery room with the mothers. Believe it or not. I'm that old. And so my dad was outside of the delivery room somewhere in a hospital hallway with my grandfather, with his dad, in Los Angeles, California, where I was born. And the doctor came out. And, of course, this was also in the days prior to sonograms. We didn't have those back then. And so the idea that I'd like to find out what I'm having... Didn't happen. Remember that, some of us, yeah? So the doctor or the nurse or whoever it was that was attending came out into the hallway and declared to my dad and my grandfather, you have a son. And my mom, who was not in the hallway, obviously, but says that she had never seen my grandfather dance until that day. That's her story, and I, I buy it. But through my grandfather's eyes and out of his heart, I believe across the family I was accepted as a blessing. What was hard for me that day in college when she asked that question was that I looked around the class and there were some people who did not raise their hands. And so then she asked the other side of that, who of you were not seen as a blessing? And two or three people raised their hands. And in the course of that class hour, she elicited a little bit of information from them very carefully and very gently, but you could hear these stories where I was not planned and I was not wanted. And one story that just struck my heart was that one girl said that when I was born, my father took off. And we never saw him again. And I I can't imagine those stories because my family of origin is so different to that. And perhaps you're with me. Perhaps, you know, your mom and your dad raised you, loved you, took care of you, launched you well into life. But perhaps that's not true for you. My friend Larry has a a story to tell that just is heartbreaking. But Larry was one of three boys. And on Christmas Day, when he was about eight or nine years old, They came down and had breakfast together as a family with their mom and dad. And then the three boys, as you can imagine, three rambunctious boys were told, okay, there's Christmas presents under the tree. So they took off and went in and started tearing open Christmas presents. And by the time all the Christmas presents were open and it was time to clean up and put things away and go eat Christmas dinner, they looked around and Larry's mom was gone. And Larry tells a story very profoundly about how his dad looked around and couldn't understand where she had gone and it took them a while to figure out that while they were opening their presents another man picked her up in the driveway and left. And so he grew up without his mom. His mom just abandoned him and on Mother's Day I imagine I think of my friend Larry and I think you know, what a day this must be for him. And yet Larry has a beautiful family of his own. And his dad eventually remarried years later. And, and as his stepmom reached her twilight years, I was there and saw him take care of her before she passed away. And I understand God's grace and mercy and horrible circumstances. But I look at that and I just wonder sometimes about how in life we often find ourselves in a mess. And sometimes in that mess where people do things that are inadvisable and they make decisions that hurt one another and we wonder whether we're actually blessed or favored or not, we ask ourselves, you know, where is God smiling and how could he be smiling on this? I could go on and on, circumstance after circumstance, story after story from hospital rooms where... Parents sat there with me and said, how in the world did this happen? Telephone calls in the middle of the night when I just go, what in the world is going on? Because this cannot be the will of God. I look around at the world where we live and I, I see that, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world who suffer and even Die executed because they believe the way we believe. And I look around and I see children who suffer unnecessarily and um, never have a chance. And I wonder, well, how in the world can God smile on this? Some of you know that I have a deep belief that God wants his people to shine light in the darkest places, and so that has led me to participate in a few things in a few places that, of ministry that other pastors don't get the chance to. And then I know there are other pastors that go into other places and they work with drug addiction. They work in prisons and places like that. And, and you go into those places and you go, this is not the way God intended it. And how in the world can God bless this? How in the world does God smile? in those kinds of circumstances. You know, in those kinds of circumstances, we just look and say, this is just a mess. There's nothing good that can come of this. And many of us, when we're faced with those things, are tempted to just shrug our shoulders or throw up our hands and say, there's nothing I can do. What little I can do won't amount to enough. And so I'm moving on. I am not going to apply myself here because this is just too broken. And when we see life in those terms, life appears as more of a curse than a blessing. Because God isn't smiling on this stuff. I don't see God at work here. I just see decay. I just see destruction and pain. And it doesn't feel like God favors us, not here. Years ago, 1998, I was sitting with my wife Kayleen and my parents and our, at that time our two-year-old daughter underneath some coconut palm trees behind an old missionary house in Mozambique in Africa. And we were sitting there with one of our church leaders and his wife. It was just a few years six years after the war had ended there, a 16-year civil war. And all the memories were still fresh, and you could see all over the place. The war had been here not too long ago. And yet my mom asked the superintendent's wife to tell us a little bit of her story. I no longer ask these questions when I go over there because enough time has passed, and you don't want to dredge up and open these things unnecessarily. But this lady sat there clear-eyed with a steady voice Did not cry, did not waver, did not ask us for any form of pity, but she just said, this is what happened to me. Some men came through our village. I don't know whether they were government forces or rebel forces, but they came through our village and they threatened everybody. And in the middle of the night, they came to our house and they opened the door and they took me and they marched me away. And for about a week, we marched farther and farther into the bush And then she just left out whatever happened at the next chapter. And she said, after about a week, one night, I realized I was able to get the, the, the rope that they tied me up. I was able to get it loose. And I got loose and I just started walking back the way we came. And one day she just showed back up at her house. She'd made it all the way back. Now, in my mind, I was putting together what must have happened in those days. All the suffering, all the abuse, walking without water, without food, trying to get back to her family. And I just think, you know, here's somebody who has placed their faith in God, and it, it would look to us at a glance as though God abandoned her. And she had to do it on her own. But instead, she used other words to define that. And so I remember Kayleen asking her some questions then as she shared her story. And one of the questions Kayleen asked was, how is it that you can serve God and love God here with all this suffering, all this poverty, all this war? And she smiled and she said, you know, there's not a lot of things that have come in between Us and the Lord. (laughs) That was her answer. So, where is God's smile? Well, I want to look to a story where another person suffered tremendously, and that's the book of Job. I have to tell you that when we look at the book of Job, it's a little bit problematic. So, before I read this passage of scripture, you need to understand a few things about the book of Job. The book of Job is not funny. It's not humorous. It's not a great story. There's a tremendous amount of suffering. Job loses everything. He was wealthy. He had a large family. He was blessed. He was respected. And he lost it all. He lost his children. He lost his livelihood. And eventually he lost his health. In the midst of that, Job has some friends. Some friends probably like friends that you and I have had along the way. And the friends come alongside and they go, Job your life has taken a terrible turn and you must have done something wrong in order for this suffering to have taken place. This must be your fault. Now, if you think that's terrible thinking, think again, because we come up against it all the time. We see somebody who is unemployed. We see somebody who is homeless. We see somebody who's in ill health and we go, what did you do? Well, that's exactly what Job's friend said. Job, what did you do? And Job is kind of racking his brain, and he goes, I don't think I have done anything to displease God. I have been a righteous man, and this isn't fair. And so Job kind of turns the story, and he says, you know, I think what it is is that God is kind of unfair, That God is is kind of capricious, I like that word, which means that you can do one thing at a moment and then the next moment you do another thing and God just quickly changes his mind. And for some reason, God has chosen to, to switch from blessing me extraordinarily to cursing me extraordinarily and my life went from something beautiful to something horrible and I don't know why, but for some reason, God did this to me. So that's the kind of conversation that Job and his friends are having. Well, as these friends speak back to Job, have their answers, God intervenes and answers. And for the three friends that speak back at first, God speaks back and rebukes them and says, You're wrong. (laughs) This isn't because of what Job did. You're wrong. And and then this character comes along, this guy by the name of Elihu. And he gets to speak. He's the fourth one that gets to speak. And he's kind of mysterious. We don't understand much about him. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But Elihu gets up to speak. And he goes, I have a different take on things here. And he says, you know, Job, I, I don't think you're quite as righteous as you say you are. And I don't think God is capricious either. I think there's something else going on here. And he says, you know, this is what we understand of God. And he begins to unpack that. And and so in Job chapter 33 is where Elihu starts his whole speech. And we're just gonna pick up a couple of verses of it. As he's talking about God, he says, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, Spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. So there's this peace of God that actually saves us and pulls us out of the bad things. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. Remember that idea? He can pray to God and find favor. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. This is the word of Elihu to Job. You know, Job, you can call out to God. You can cry out to him. And he is going to do this restoration work in you. And it will be incredible. And he will do it because he gives you favor. Because it pleases him. And will restore them to full well-being. Well you know after a whole litany of terrible advice after these three friends come through and tell job you know it's it's your fault and you're miserable and actually they go even beyond that if you've read job you know what i'm what i'm coming to but they they suggest to job a solution to his suffering and again it's a solution that we see offered even today and they say to job you know job your life is so miserable you should curse god you, you've done something wrong, and he's punishing you. So you should just curse God, and he'll kill you. God will strike you dead, and so they're suggesting to Job suicide by divinity. You know, you've heard of suicide by cop. They're suggesting, you know what? Make God so angry he just strikes you dead, and then it's over. And and that's their advice. I mean heaven forbid that we actually end up with friends like that. They go, oh, you had a bad day? Put a gun to your head. I mean, who needs friends like that? But this is what they're suggesting in the long run. They look at all of his suffering. And so after this kind of terrible advice, here comes Elihu and he goes, no, wait a minute, what is going on here? Do you really understand what's happening here? And so... My friend, and many of you know Bishop Kendall, he likes to talk about the book of Job as a house with two stories. Stories as in, you know, the way a house is built, a a ground level and another story above that where you go up the steps. But also in terms of stories in narratives that are told. And so there's this story down below of Job and his friends and Job and all these bad things that happened to him. But at the beginning of the book, we see this other story that goes on when the devil comes to the Lord and says, you know, I've been looking around the earth, and if you would let me do some of these things, these people would defy you. And he puts his finger on Job, and he goes, let me do to Job what I want. And so God says, try. And allows it. And so there's this other story that's happening Simultaneous with what's going on with Job, there's this heavenly story in in an upper level. And somehow, Elihu understands that God is like this up above or around us, somehow not quite apparent to us, but God doesn't change, and he gives favor to people. And so then, he asks this next question, and he goes, kind of asks this next question, he goes, who can God actually favor? Who can God actually smile on? Who could God actually bless? And you might think that it would go back to Job's defense that I have done nothing wrong. I am an innocent man, so you should bless me, an innocent man. And Elihu says, not, not so fast, Job. The Lord blesses those who ask. The Lord blesses those who ask. I got a story here. <clears throat> a story that doesn't sit well with my sister because that has to do with the favor my parents gave me. And, and so, it's a great story to me. Not such a happy story to her. But... Nevertheless, my mom and dad had a painting a, 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 that was hanging in their house all the years of us growing up. And it was a painting of a little African child eating out of a pot. It's a famous painting called Cotton the Act. If you're in South Africa, it's very well known by a very well known artist. And they had a print of that painting. And at some point, mom took it down, and I was at their house, and I was sleeping in their guest room. And for some reason, I dropped something, and it went underneath the bed, and I looked underneath the bed, and I pulled out, and I go, hey, Mom, why do you have this under the bed? She goes, well, I just don't have anywhere to put it here, and so I said, Mom, I want this painting. Now, I put conditions on it. I said, when, when you die, because you'll never want it again at that point, when you die, could I have this painting? Now, some of you have been in similar circumstances probably to this, but my mom's answer really surprised me. My mom goes, I don't have anywhere to put it in the house. And she just pulled it out and she goes, here, take it home. So I did. Wow, what a score. And I brought it home and I hung it on the wall. And you know what happened? My sister came to visit. And she walks in and she goes, is that mom and dad's copy of Cotton Act? And I go, no, It's mine. Yeah, and she looks at it and she goes, no, no, this is, yeah. And and she goes, how did you end up with this? Why did you get this? And I had the best defense in the book. I said, I asked. That was it. And she was a little miffed for a little while. And then I suggested to her, I said, hey, sis, if you want something, ask for it. You know, there's something about accessing the favor of God that requires the humble act of asking. We tend to live from an arrogant position that says, God should favor me just because I am. Just because I showed up, just because I exist, God should smile on me. Or maybe we get into... A similar situation to Job where we go, you know, my life has been miserable, so I'm due. I'm owed. And God needs to settle this account somehow for me. And I want to tell you that the favor of God seems to be connected to those who ask for it. Now, I, I went through in the past couple of weeks, and I made a list of all the people that I could find in Scripture that it appeared that they that that it said that these were people who had the favor of God, that, that God favored them or God looked upon them. There's a lot. But as I was looking through that and going through concordance and looking up these words in Greek and Hebrew and what occurred to me is there's an awful lot of people who asked God's favor, who called out to him and said, Hey Lord, I'm about to endeavor this. Would you grant me favor? Over and over and over again. So, you're in good company. If you've been about to walk into the boss's office and you breathe that prayer, Lord, please somehow let this work out to my advantage. If you've been on your way to the principal's office, oh, I've been there, and prayed, oh, Lord, I hope they don't find out about, and they didn't. If you've been on your way home and there's red and blue lights in your rearview mirror, and you say, Oh Lord, my insurance cannot take another hit, and you get a warning, you're in good company. There's a lot of people in Scripture that said, Wow, things are bad. Help. Help. And God frequently, miraculously, uniquely extends his favor. When we experience that, then we get this incredible opportunity to say, look what God has done. We get to communicate that favor to others and say, this that I have experienced isn't because I was owed. It wasn't because I was due. It wasn't because I deserved it. It wasn't because I got the pieces right or I had the right formula. It was simply because I asked of God and God blessed me that's it. So after the terrible advice, ask God for favor. And I would just suggest that for you this week, I don't know what you're going to face, but at some point you're going to go, Lord, if you were there, could you help with this? And I guarantee you he's listening. I don't know what his answer will be and what his help will look like, but he is listening and he is ready to grant favor. That's what Elihu said. So here's a question I have then. Who gets to be Elihu now? Who gets to be the fourth friend who comes in and says something different? Well, Elihu was a different friend from these other guys. There were a couple of different reasons for that. One is that Elihu came with a completely different message. He saw things in a different way and he was able to come in and go, wait a minute, they're not right. The second might seem inconsequential to you but it's it's included in scripture so i wanted to pay attention to it because when elihu starts to talk he says you know i was hesitant to get up and talk i wasn't sure i should say anything because i'm younger than you job now i read that and i'm at the point in time in my life that i'm probably identifying with job he had grown children that he lost And I'm at that age where you know my children are going out on their own and things can happen to them and I can identify with that. And to think that a young man would come up to me and go, you know, Hank, maybe even Pastor Hank, you've got it all wrong. That'd be kind of hard to swallow. That'd be kind of hard to take. A young person coming up and saying, I've got a different take on this. You care to hear? You want to listen to it? And you want to go, where's your life experience? Where have you suffered? How do you know God better than I know God? And yet, I'm telling you, (laughs) some of you have experienced this just like I have, out of the mouths of babes, right? That God would bring someone along who is totally inappropriate, inexperienced, and he will speak truth through them sometimes from our own children. Not too long ago, I was riding in the car. My daughter was driving. Some of you know my daughter and know her well. And and she was driving down the road and we were having this conversation and I was giving my opinion on certain circumstances and her response was, you know, Dad, that's kind of messed up. And I respect her. She's a smart kid she's not a kid anymore but to me she's a kid and so i said oh really explain that to me and then she went on to say well if you think about it this way and if this is what's happening and then i had to ride along in silence for a while while i digested the fact that my daughter had just beat me to the truth you see, here's the thing, a trusted friend, a great friend who understands and can communicate that is a friend who will give you clear truth. In fact, truth oftentimes is uncomfortable and we avoid it and yet it is necessary. And so Solomon, as he's gathering the Proverbs, he says, you know, the truth of a friend, the truth of a friend is more desirable than the kisses of an enemy. You see, when we hear this clear truth and and you have those moments where you go along in silence and you go, I gotta process this now, that word is not a word that will be rebuked. After each of the three other friends that spoke to Job, God spoke up and said, no, you're wrong. He rebuked all three of them. He goes, oh no, that's not it. But after Elihu speaks for about five chapters worth of the book of Job, God is silent. And here's what I think. God is silent because he's already spoken. So I wonder, who's Elihu to you? And maybe, who do we get to be Elihu for? You see, there's one thing about receiving all of this, but there's also something about passing on truth and clarity and hope and encouragement that is required of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as friends who live in fellowship. So it's about being and receiving God's answer. It's about being God's answer in the midst of those dark places. So blessing with truth. Years ago, I had this, this notion, and I did this on a Sunday morning in a, in a previous church I pastored, and it was very powerful. But I, I had this series I was preaching about labels and how people get labeled by different things. And so there are labels we give for race. There are labels we give for economic status. And sometimes we package those together. And so maybe, you know, maybe you've been attached to one of those labels. So one of the labels I used was white trash. Because I was talking to mainly white people in that church. But there were some African Americans there. And I said, you know, you guys have been labeled certain things. So it's not just race, though. It's It's gender. And sometimes it's aspects about gender. So I said, you know, people have used labels. Somebody might have called you a dumb blonde or a dumb jock. And people have used these labels and usually those labels communicate some kind of curse. I mean, let's just be honest. They curse us. They're not four-letter words. Sometimes they're whole paragraphs, but they say, these people are not worth much. And most of us have experienced one of those labels. But I said, you know, I, I did this whole series on labels, and, and I had these, this package of, you know, those peel-and-stick labels. And I said, you know, I have one on me, and I said, we need to peel some of those labels off. But then I said, here's the thing, you need to hear how God identifies you. And so I, it was a small church, and I could do this. So I had these peel-and-stick labels up at the front on a table similar to this. And I had a Sharpie, and I said, look, I want to redefine what is said about you. So if you'll come to the front, I'm going to give you a label. And at first I thought, you know, maybe one or two people will come up that have experienced some real brokenness and curses in their lives. And, And so I waited at the front and I got out there and I saw a lady start coming. As she walked down the aisle, I started writing something that came to my mind, a truth about her that was a blessing. And she came up to the front and I read it to her and I placed the label like a name badge on her. And then a, a guy came, and he had come out of drug addiction and crime. And as he came up, I wrote the label, and on the, I, I'll remember his for a long time. I wrote, You Are Free. And I put it on him, and he just cried. And I thought, Okay, we're good. But as I started doing this, and they turned around and they were walking back to their seat with their label on, you know what happened? Everybody got up. And I couldn't write fast enough. And they started coming down, and I was writing, and people were coming. I go, Lord, I'm praying, going, Lord, give me a word for the next person. There are kids coming up that have never sinned, you know. And you go, you're beautiful, you know. And, and, I, and it was an incredible experience. And, you know, my wife, in the cover of her Bible, if you open up her study Bible at home, that label is stuck in there. And it says, Daughter of God. That was a powerful moment in our church because there are people who had been living under the curses of people rather than the favor of God. And we needed to redefine that. I want to tell you, we live in a day and age where people are so quick to condemn and they'll tell you what God is angry about and I want us to be the people who will tell you what God is delighted about. You see, we need to be people who identify God's favor and say it's actually there and God delights in his children. And we get to live in the same favor that Mary and David and Moses and Abraham. We could go on and on. All these people who lived in the favor of God. We get to do that too. And as we communicate that one to each other, you know what we do? We lift the cloud And the burden of suffering. So when Elihu says, You know, Job, you're not blessed by your own righteousness, you're blessed by God, but you're not cursed by God either, you can kind of sense this lifting of Job's spirit. It's not up to me. And it's not that God just woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning but I get to call on the favor of God. And so my friends, my challenge to you is this. Let us become people who live in experience and then share the delight of our Lord.